Hi, I'm Katie Yale, Editor-in-Chief of Interiors and Sources, and you're listening to I Hear Design, a weekly INS podcast. This week, I sat down with Mark Shannon, Executive Vice President of Sales for Crossville, and Tim Kern, CEO of the Kern Group, to discuss the history of tile and what designers can expect in the coming years. A big thank you to our sponsor, Crossville. Sponsorship helps ensure we're able to bring you this podcast week after week, free of charge. All right. Mark and Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Glad to be here. It's been fun. So uh, we were chatting a little bit before uh, we started the recording, and so we'll both of you just kind of uh, give us a little bit of a background of who you are and how you got into, you know, the tile market. Wow. Tim, why don't you go first? Yeah, why don't you go first, because then I'll tell a little bit about me. You. Yeah. Uh, so my involvement is um, my family owns Crossville, so I serve as co-president of our company. Um, our holding company is called Curran Group. We just celebrated our 100th anniversary this year in business. Um, oh, awesome. In addition to Crossville, we're in a number of very unrelated industries. Um, but Crossville, we were approached uh, back in the mid-'80s by an investment bank looking to raise some money to start making porcelain tile in the U.S. Um, with a Danish company. And so we became a co-investor with them um, and started Crossville back in 1985 our first production oh, cool. coming in 1986. And in the first couple of years, kind of we're partners with them. Um, they ultimately exited the business for financial needs that they had elsewhere, and so we bought out their interest and uh, have been the sole owners then for over 30 years now. Great. That's pretty crazy. Uh, so in that respect, I have pretty much worked for the current family the entire time that they have owned Crossville from the, the humble beginnings when we were under construction with our first facility here. My background is uh, after college, I went to work for the Kohler Company, and I had some friends in the interior finishing business. It was a very long time ago, Katie. And uh, one of my friends said, uh, you might like the tile business. There's a job opening. Uh, would you check it out? So shortly thereafter, I left. Uh, that industry and got into the tile business. I've been in the ceramic tile industry now uh, since 1980. No, 19, yeah, 1980. So it's been quite a, a run for me. I'm on my 38th year, I'm my 33rd year with Crossville. That's great. Now, is um, so you said that the uh, Kern Group has been around for a hundred years. And has that always been, like, family-owned um, and operated? What's kind of the history of the holding group? So, yeah, when I say it for 100 years, it's our family celebrating 100 years in successive businesses where I'm fourth generation now running the family business. Started back in 1918 with my great-grandfather and ultimately his three sons. And at that time, we were in the coal and ice delivery business for heating and refrigeration um, here in the Chicago area. And over the years, obviously, coal and ice are no longer utilized in your daily life. Uh, 
we evolved into heating oil delivery. Uh, heating oil, strangely enough, led us to the asphalt paving road construction business uh, that we still have today. That's of our active businesses, there's four business groups. Uh, the oldest, which now this year was also celebrating its 80th year, is road construction work here in Chicago. And about four years ago, we also started in San Antonio, down in Texas. Hmm. Um, and so business went from great-grandfather. My grandfather was the last of his generation to survive. So his family came to own the business. Then my father and his three siblings, um, we, in the last couple of years, have bought out all of our other relatives. And so now it's my brother and four sisters and I um, that own the business. Um, all of our, our other cousins and what have you have all exited. Um, and today, like I say, I'm fourth generation running it. We've got fifth generation members um, now employed at the company at different levels and different parts of our operation. Uh, hopefully one day one of them will will follow along and, and be sitting in the same chairs. That's great. It, what I find so interesting about that, too, is, you know, right now we're going through so many big technological changes, and I know that this will tie, tie into the conversation about what's happening in Tile, but, um, you know, there's so many big technological changes, and I so, so often hear people say, like, they're trying to hold on to markets that maybe – maybe are going to go by the wayside and having that that ability to kind of go with the flow and say like, okay, maybe ICE is not the best uh, thing for our company right now. Maybe we should be moving with that. That's a really cool, like it's just a, it's a cool almost talent that I, I worry yeah, that sometimes people hold on too much. You, well, that's, you know, you're, you're trying to constantly evaluate and as um, our employees at at Crossville, for example, no. Um, they get scrutinized. We're not a um, private equity group, let's call it in the traditional sense of, um, you know, when we buy you, we are already plotting our exit. Um, the businesses that we're in, the platforms that we have today, like say road construction, that goes back 80 years. Um, we're connected to the railroad industry. We got in that back in the early 70s. Crossville in the 80s, um, and then our fourth platform is in the paint finishing industry, um, and that's now been 20-plus years um, that we've been in that industry. So we don't go to flip them, but in between those four platform businesses, we've, we've had, as I mentioned before, the heating oil we got into in the early 70s. We exited that business because it was no longer viable. Um, in the 80s and 90s, where we were actually in the sod farming business and grass seed production, um, after 15 years, we concluded that we could not make the returns that we needed in that business and moved on. It's it's always tough to leave businesses behind because we're we're very connected to the employees and the communities where we work. So we're very much aware of our role in a community and amongst families and what we have. Um, our number one listed core value is family, so um, we're careful about where and how we treat our employees when we're, we're going through that process. But the viability of it, you know, it's, it's a tree or whatever, you have to prune it every now and then to make sure that mm -hmm. the plant continues to grow. 
Well, in the 80s, when um, Crossville first came into being, um, what were some of the issues in setting that up as an American brand? Well, the well, hardest was, part yeah, go ahead, was, that, was that there was very little established business making tile in the U.S. There were some old historic businesses, but as technology, as you mentioned before, was changing and you had what are known as roller hearth kilns, so just a continuous feed of product through a kiln to fire the tile, um, porcelain tile in particular, which is kind of a, a subset of ceramic tile to begin with, was brand new, represented very much a very small, small niche market. Um, today, it's pretty much the norm and accepted standard. But back then, it was kind of unique and off all on its own. So most of the technology was coming from Italy in establishing a business here in the U.S. The support infrastructure wasn't there. We weren't connected to all the equipment manufacturers. You weren't well-known in the industry. So obtaining the right level of expertise, knowledge, and then support was probably the most difficult. We had a number of issues in our first couple of years with some equipment and technology um, that, again, we weren't equipped to handle and the support that we received at the time from Italy. I mean, we were that little outpost that wasn't all that critical. Their core business demanded that they pay attention to the, the customer base they had in their own backyard, primarily at that point in Italy. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you were moving into an industry and in a location like Crossville, Tennessee, where nobody had ever made tile before. So you were mm -hmm. starting with an entirely um, undeveloped, uneducated in terms of the, the technology, the process, the, the art of making tile. Um, nobody had that in the background, so you had 100% of your workforce making tile for the first time in their lives. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about, like, I I hadn't thought about when the technology of, of surrounding porcelain tile came into being. Um, and so what were some of the uh, technologies that that really advanced in those first few years? Well, Tim hit on one of them, and he is pretty adept at the equipment piece, but Prior to the roller hearth technology, you were using tunnel kilns, you were using pyramid kilns, you were using a lot of different technology to fire tile, and it was taking a really long time. It would be on mm -hmm. railroad cars going through kilns at a really slow pace. And when I say railroad cars, I mean small kiln carts. And they were pumped into the kiln at night, it was turned on, in the morning they were pulled out, the tile was sorted off, and they reloaded it and did it again. So production was very, very slow until they started mm -hmm. automating the pressing. When the roller uh, kilns came in and the, and the speed increased, uh, you started to get uh, better and better production, and it drove uh, the cost down, and technology just increased from there. Prior to that technology, you never saw big tiles. If you, you're probably not you know that old, but in, prior to 1975, Prior to 1976, prior to, you know, before that, the largest tiles you would see were maybe some 8x8s. Eight eight. 
that mostly were four by eight and six by eight quarry tiles. And then you remember the small mosaic tiles that were in the you know the turn of the century buildings, and then the four and a quarter inch glazed wall tile that you saw that matched refrigerators of the fifties. So that was where the technology was at until the type of technology came along that allowed uh, plants like the first Crossville plant to be built. And so that's really interesting because that is still a – like something that we're seeing today is this um, – the fact that technology is making it so that tiles can be bigger and thinner and even bigger. You know, like every year it seems like they're getting just a little bit bigger. Um how has digital technology uh, helped make that happen in the current, you know, in, in the last few decades, you know, uh, versus, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s? That's a, a tricky question. I don't know, Tim, if you want to talk about it from a from an investment and CapEx type of a position. Well, or from I mean, a the biggest issue... No, the biggest issue winds up being, you know, before you were somewhat limited in, I mean, when we first started making um, porcelain tile, it, it has true body color. That was what you were selling, and you could either make solid colors or um, what we call mingles, but kind of a salt and peppery look where you'd just mix a couple of colors, kind of look like a sprinkling effect. Um, it, I'll call it a poor man's version of granite, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. Our original factory, um, one of the first engineers who helped construct the facility, um, I mean, more or less instructed us, you will not make more than two sizes in this facility, and you can only make eight colors. Well, you think of the plethora of things that are there today, technology and changes that we've made in the manufacturing process how you handle powders, when you make the color um, in the process, all of those things have given it so that you now have kind of the almost the full spectrum of color. You have some limitations in porcelain, mainly because of the temperatures reacting with the different colors. So there are still some oddball ones that you can't truly obtain, um, but you can come close to most things nowadays. So as time went on, Okay, then you began to go back to some kind of decoration on top of the tile. Um, that decoration, in order to stand up to the characteristics of a porcelain, to have this very dense, um, impervious body, which was great, the older, original glazed tiles and what have you, um, those glazes were not strong enough to stand up to commercial applications, heavy wear, different things like that. Porcelain kind of solved that problem, but for, for porcelain to move beyond kind of its original roots, you needed further development in glaze technologies, decorating techniques, and ultimately you got those to a level where they were as strong as the tile itself, so now you could begin to make looks like stone by doing silk screening and different sprays and more of I'll call it what had been more traditional in the glazing processes of old manufacturing, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. You now jump forward to kind of the next generation where inkjet printers come along. You can scan in any look now 
your graphics artist can tweak that to make it even more realistic. But you can actually print images. I mean, in our factory now, we have a, I'll call it a little gift or gimmicky thing that we give when we do plant tours. We can take your picture when you walk in the building, and by the time you get done with your hour, hour and a half um, tour through the facility, we can give you a tile with your picture baked on the front, just like going to your grocery store and getting your picture on a cake or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. The technology allows you to make almost any kind of look you want. Limitation to that is it's two-dimensional. So you can get a look, but it's going to have a flatness to it. So, again, the technology people play around with how do you combine all of the different surface treatment technologies that are available to even take that just generic photographic look and turn it into more three-dimensional feel and look by combining different techniques. And now they're actually looking at ways to print, not with inks, but print with glazes, again, giving you the ability to create more structure, more depth, and more vibrant visuals and stuff. Um, so over time, each of those progressions has um, made it to the point. I, I can, I'm not the expert at it, but I can tell you it's extremely difficult, um, if not impossible. I know I can't tell the difference unless I flip a, a product over to know whether it was a natural material or is now a man-made tile. Um, you can mm -hmm. pick a stone anywhere in the world, and it can be recreated. The good and bad of that is you can make anything you want. It means also that... Pretty much Somebody everybody. look at everybody else. Yeah. And to your point, uh, Tim's Tim's exactly right. The the digital uh, printing aspect of the ceramic tile industry has, in many ways, leveled the playing field. It's allowed people from all over the world to duplicate products really quickly. Some are much better than others. Some have very inexpensive soft bodies. Some do not. Not all of them are porcelain, uh, but it has made it uh, more challenging, and you have to really differentiate yourself, like Tim mentioned, with being able to find techniques to add structure and more realism to the body of the tile so that when you do digitally print, screen or brush on the surface, the complexity of the look that you're getting is so realistic that it can't just be copied with digital. So mm -hmm. if you're going to be a leader, you have to have a way of, of uh, making the product more interesting visually, more interesting to the touch, uh, and more interesting to the way light hits it. Mm -hmm. I think that's really that's that's an interesting point. Is because I don't often think when I look at tile of how the light hits it, unless it's you know incredibly glossy. I know that um, you know during some tile shows. Um, you know, you'll see a very, very glossy piece that it's almost it's almost like a mirror. It's reflective, right. very reflective. But otherwise, um, how does how do you design tiles with light in mind, or how does that um, come into the equation? Well, you know, let's just take a very simple example of of uh, two or three of the trends that are are happening right now. Obviously, there's wood looks. There is also things that we call minimalist, which tend to be the cement or the concrete kind of look. 
Then there's the fabric looks, and uh, and then there's the, the the natural stones. So if we jump to one and just say fabric, for instance, and let's just say that you wanted a tile that had a minimum kind of a satin gloss finish, but you wanted it to look like a linen. That linen, when you touch it with your hand, you have to be able to feel the threads, you know, the the the, the thread count. Uh, mm -hmm. If you want a burlap, it's going to be rather coarse. If you want something like a cotton, it's going to be very tight, but you'd be able to see it. And if the light's directly over it, it's going to look flat. But if the light hits it from the side, you're going to go, aha, look at that. It looks like a real fabric. And so some people like that kind of things. Well, you just take that and spread it across wood. You want a flat wood? Do you want a scraped wood? Do you want a wood with cruising where... You've got softer finishes, it's been scraped, but then backfilled in with a, a lighter color to give it a more interesting texture. When the light hits it from the side, you can kind of see slight little indentations in the softer part of the wood and rises in where the wood was harder. And then it gives you that little bit of a texture that when you are sitting at your kitchen table and looking across this beautiful floor, it looks like a natural wood versus a printed piece of, of paper. So... Mm -hmm. That kind of level of complexity is what you find in, in the higher designs. So light does play a factor in it, and it's it's kind of cool. We have to stage our photography for our catalogs and all of our uh, web-based stuff with light in mind because if the flat finish, like the mirror ones that you were considering when you walk through a trade show, that's their goal. They want it to be a mirror finished. They want it to look like glass or something that's just got a really smooth finish of water on the surface. But if you've got a product that you've designed to have some relief that stows some some calcium deposits in it like a natural quartz, and you want to have that kind of set down a little in it so it looks like when you polish the little bit of it chipped out of the tile just like it would in the real stone, when that light hits it from that angle, you can detect that and go, wow, that's that's real. And so that's kind of the goal. Well, it's, it's really where you can't just take a photograph Right. Do that, and you can replicate a look, but to get the actual impression of the real, the real deal, that's where a graphic artist comes in, and they they have the techniques and technologies then to, as Mark said, it, at the end of the day, you don't want depressions and um, in actual crevices in the tile because those are places for dirt um, and mm -hmm. other things to accumulate. So at the end of the day, you actually want something that's got a uniform surface that looks like it's textured. Um, mm -hmm. That it has any texturing to it, you're trying to manage that. I mean, also keeping in mind on any of these that you're also managing coefficient of friction, you know, for a safe floor. So you, you're constantly balancing a number of different things, but that graphic artist in particular gets down to also helping decide where you're going to maybe accent um, a reflective surface. So we can put down in certain areas more, I'll call it reflectivity, with different additions to inks and, and uh, glazes that we might put on so that you'll get a different feel um, just by the way a light hits something that mimics more realistic than you can get, again, with a picture. Um, mm -hmm. 
it, it's quite there is art to getting all of that in the best ways. Again, anybody can make Mark use the linen look. You can take a picture of any linen you want, feed that into a printer, and get it to come out. Mm-hmm. How does that look versus one that somebody has then gone to the next level and done more in terms of highlighting and creating a visual that truly shows you um, and leads you to believe? I mean, the true test is if you think that there's texture there or some even open crevice, and then when you put your finger on it, you find out that it isn't there. It's just an optical illusion. Um, so there's mm-hmm. a little bit of optical illusion magic <laughs> to some of these to do them at the highest, most um, most impressive levels. Right? You know, if you're if you want something cheap and you know just covering a floor. Yeah, you can get that pretty much anywhere, and you can get it relatively inexpensive. But if you really want something that is noticeably different, that requires somebody who knew what they were doing and and had a very particular image for what they wanted to project. You know, a linen from a crossville may be different in certain ways than a linen from some of our competitors. Not saying one's better or worse than the other. It's what effect were you targeting and what did you want to go after? Yep. I feel I feel like it's so important. You know, this is one of those reasons why it's so important to still see things in person because we're seeing, you know, libraries becoming smaller, material libraries becoming smaller and smaller and why it's so important. Because um, I know that the Retroactive 2.0, um, I had heard about that so many times, but then seeing it coverings, Right. It was like a completely different experience. Right. You saw those vivid colors. You saw it in those 12 by 24s. And then you looked at that special piece that had that print on it with the ridges. And you get that gloss and this feel and you go, wow, what is that? That is mm-hmm. really cool. And and if you rub your hands across it, it's super easy to clean. It's got the right coefficient of friction. But there's actually something there that makes it more interesting. And you've hit on something that's really challenging because you talked about tile sizes. Tile mm-hmm. sizes now are anywhere. You can produce porcelain. I don't want to call them tiles anymore. They can be called slabs. We have porcelain tile panels that can be in thicknesses of 3-plus millimeters to 5.6 millimeters. We have porcelain tile slabs that are uh, 12 millimeters. We have tiles that we press here in our factory that are 24 by 48 inches, 2 foot by 4 foot. Uh, products, so you've got eight square feet within one tile, and you now are, are dealing with these monster pieces with, as Tim talked about, the sophistication of designers and graphic designers who have come up with these incredible looks with this subtle variation that transfers across a large piece. And as libraries shrink and you get a one-inch-by-one-inch one chip, which is all you can put in a materials library or some small mm-hmm. folder, there's no way to show the interesting complexity of these products. So we're having to get very creative with images, with pop-ups, with, you know, trade shows, with tabletops, with CEUs. Uh, when we're off subject and get the CEU done to show and for our reps to carry these massive pieces into design firms to say, see, this is what we're talking about. The challenge is incredible. Mm-hmm. 
because it's better. But you have to go to well, a trade show. Well, and as you mentioned before, Mark, the other challenge there is photography oh, getting yeah. better and better. But if you ever go to a trade show or if you go into any showroom, the one universal thing you will see with everybody, whether they're professionals or just a homeowner or for their once-in-a-lifetime buy, they always touch. It's one of the few mm -hmm. products that still attracts people from a tactile standpoint that they have to they, – they gravitate towards running their hand over the surface no matter what. They do. I work a lot with the design community, and what I've found is, Katie, they, they're perfectly happy to have their lights in a catalog, their furniture in a catalog. They're perfectly happy to have a number of the other fixtures and finishes in catalogs. But when it comes to tile, that's, that's not something you can look at a picture of and make a decision. You have to handle it to decide if it's what you want. So as libraries shrink, they haven't figured out how to get rid of the flooring-type products yet because without handling them and seeing them, it's really hard to make a decision as to how well they're going to go with everything else. Well, I think one of the challenges you're facing right now, Mark, I mean, from our discussions, is just what you said, Katie, in terms of you can't put as much real product in um, a design firm's library, so the demand for supply of samples now goes exceedingly the other direction. I want it. Not only do I want it, but I need it within the next, not, it used to be a day, a week, whatever. Now it's down to I need it next hour because I'm right. doing a presentation or I need to have that because I've got all these other things coming together. I need a sample of this, this, and this. I'm not sure which one. I could look at all the photography I want, but I need to bring in three or four or ten, and I need a real sample, not a one-by-one -one chip um, to make that happen. We can deal with one-by-one -one chip later, but I need that 48-inch size piece of tile, or I need a 24 by 24, and I need it. How do Our challenge is getting that to designers so that that responsiveness doesn't take a week, it doesn't take a day, it can happen within the same day. Right. And it's very, very expensive, and it's very challenging for courier services in cities like New York and Chicago to get these samples delivered on these time frames that designers want, and then the cost of removing the samples from their offices when they're done, and the whole, uh, you know, uh, circle of life uh, issues with packaging and boxes and tiles and samples and last minute because they don't keep it in their offices anymore is putting a lot of tremendous uh, price pressure on, uh, on companies as well as on salespeople to, to manage this. So, we're dealing with a lot of a lot of new issues in the design world that have changed. And the best photography in the world helps. The best catalogs help. At the end of the day, that designer wants to see a sample. Hmm. Now, with how much is available through, like you're able to do all of these new types of glazes and and types of, uh, you know, making it look like wood or stone or. Is there ever a time in which it seems like like there are too many options for designers? Like, or, or are you seeing that designers just want more and more options? Uh, you know, Tim, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. 
designers don't want to use the same product over and over. Everything has mm-hmm. to be different. So they're constantly we'll, we work with some of the top design firms in the country and I you know you know I know this is a podcast that people are going to listen to so I'm not going to mention the names but <laughs> these are the biggest firms in the country. And it's not for a competitive mm-hmm. reason. I just don't want to single out somebody and leave somebody else out. But they will design uh, two or three banks. They will design two or three airports. They will design two or three schools and use one product. Well, the fourth school, they don't want to use that product anymore. What do you have that's new? And you're constantly getting pushed for a new wood look, a new cement look, a new real stone, a new something that they haven't seen before, which drives all of us to uh, to just continue to develop looks constantly to meet the needs and the requirements of, of the marketplace. And if I were to tell you how many custom requests we get from these firms, you'd fall out of your chair. They come to us constantly and say, of the 4,000 things you have in your catalog, we want something that you don't have in your catalog. Can you make something that looks like this for us? And we got to go to the drawing board and do it. We're capable of it. We make tons and tons of custom products a year, hundreds of thousands of square feet for clients a year of products that are one-offs that are for that client only. But it's because designers will never stop looking for the new. Mm-hmm. So, no, my catalog isn't big enough. Yeah. <laughs> Does it almost seem like then, then it's almost like the standardized is what, like they're having standardized is too much because everybody wants custom, but it just seems like that's a very hard balance to find in, in creating SKUs and, and creating, you know, a new collection. It, it, it is. Coming from where you're coming from, you know, with your Parsons background and, and what you do, you see it from our side of the fence. But if you're selling on a commodity-oriented builder program where someone's buying their first or second home and they're going to put a tile foyer in, nobody cares about the variety. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't, that's the commodity stuff that plants just pump out all day, every day. And that doesn't matter. The design's good enough. The stone looks good enough. The wear rating is good enough. You know, all that matters in that environment primarily is price. When you get into the design world where we live, at this end, well, now it's durability, style, fashion, quality, and that all matters. So different segments of the market uh, have different quality and finish requirements. But to your point, there's more than enough would appear in the marketplace, there are so many options. Um, and if you go to any of the major trade shows, you would just be overwhelmed with how can there be that many different slight variations that really are relevant. And I can assure you as a manufacturing, the manufacturing side of our company and our warehouse and logistics people would love to find ways. I mean, that's the constant balance back and forth is, how do I manage and right-size all of these different products? I can't make, at least in today's world, unless you want to go truly, truly simple with just the digital printing doing one-off, essentially, of everything. Um, but, again, I think from 
where we market ourselves as Crossville, we're a little bit more sophisticated than that, and so we're not operating in that world. So the more variation you bring in and more of those special custom things that Mark said, that's the challenge from a manufacturing end of things. From an inventorying standpoint, how do you have, okay, if we have, like Mark said, we can have four or 5,000 SKUs, and somebody's always asking, or we just recently signed an agreement with um, a major national chain, and I think they picked out five different tiles. All of them were a variation off of something that we had already in our portfolio, but they wanted a color slightly different or something accented. So they became five customized products for one ultimate customer. And that's, a, I think, something that historically Crossville has prided itself on is um, we have built in, and invested in our manufacturing facilities in order to provide flexibility for us to do that. Many manufacturers, and especially if you're going to operate at the lower price levels, yes, the, the way you get to lower price levels is make the same product all week long on one production line. I, I can assure you our manufacturing people would love to do that. Life gets a lot simpler when you kind of just dial it in. And if it's going down the highway, do you prefer to drive in bumper-to-bumper traffic for a minute you're sitting, or the next you might be going 50 and then all of a sudden slam your brakes on again, or do you like being out on the open road? You put cruise control on, and if you've got the adaptive cruise control now, you can even let the car slow up and speed down if an occasional – vehicle gets in the way, but, you know, just cruising along at 70 is a lot nicer than stopping and starting at 10 and 15 miles an hour, so um, mm-hmm. they would love to get, get into that world more than we allow them, that's for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we avoid those guys. They get mad at us. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to something that Tim um, said earlier, uh, which this is kind of a joke and also not at all a joke um, about the standardization. And in the beginning, you know, only able to have, you know, a handful of colors. Um, how did pink and avocado get into the, that, like, mix of only, like, eight colors that were so standardized for so long? Do you, either one of you know? You mean back in the, the original tile, like, of the 50s and 60s? Yeah, um, well, I have to tell you that we had those colors in my parents' house. And, They're in my uh, apartment right now, too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because you're out in Cedar Rapids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know they, they still have it out there. They Believe it or not, um, those wall tiles and mosaic tiles at the time were the trend colors. My mother's kitchen was avocado green with avocado green tile, and the guest bath was pink and burgundy and it came mm-hmm. from the colors that the plumbing material companies manufactured like Kohler and American Standard and if you remember mm-hmm. um, in the 70s they had uh, toilets, bathtubs and even refrigerators that were harvest gold and avocado well those tiles mm-hmm. followed suit to stay on point with those appliances and bathroom fixtures so we didn't start it. The tiles yeah, yeah. 
it's one of those things that like everybody, no matter how how involved in the design industry they are or how removed they are, they always know about the the pink and the avocado. And like, yeah, my my bathrooms all growing up were one was pink, one was avocado, both of them with black accents. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Every yeah, and if you if you think about it, the, the, usually the commode was the same color, and so was the sink. It was one of those. Oh words yeah. Where it all came from there. And the kitchen was the refrigerator. You know, you had to have yeah. that refrigerator <laughs> harvest gold and the uh, harvest gold wall tile to go with it. But over the years, Mark, I mean, we've we've consulted with color experts and had oh, yeah. arrangements with those, again, for the same reasons, Katie, that, um, again, my wife would fall down laughing on the floor hearing me talk about color and tone. That <laughs> I remember sitting in, in one of our meetings and a color advisor that we used for years, Barbara Schumeister, walked in and had a number of products that she was suggesting that we introduce and how those colors were important. And literally, she just walked in with fashion magazines and, um, you know, other household appliances and furniture and draperies and wall coverings and just randomly tore pages out of these magazines and dropped them on the floor next to the products. And those color trends, as I'm sure you're well aware, they all, at the end of the day, they're all moving in the same directions at the same time. And you don't mm-hmm. see literally even clothing fashion being that much different than what you're seeing in automotive and, like I say, wall coverings and furnishings and different things, um, there is, those trends are um, are prevalent, they're there, they're real. Um, now, my interpretation of that sometimes is, yeah, you get a bunch of these people all together at the same time to forecast what the colors are going to be, and when somebody tells you this is the in look for the next three or four years, everybody's going to kind of follow suit because all those industries are involved in some of those groups that are um, forecasting or dictating, I don't know which it is, what what trends are going to be um, important in the future. So everybody te- tends to stay on trend a lot more than being just kind of one-off. Right. Yeah, I think... It's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, yeah. we're forecasting I'm that this is going to be it, that yeah. it's going to be this. <laughs> I think well, that I, I used to kid I said, we're paying you all this money so that you can always be right. It's like the weatherman telling you what the weather is going to be after he's looked out the window. It's going to rain. Well, yeah, it's going to rain because it's already raining. Great. Thanks yeah. For <laughs> Thanks for the forecast. And our first well, color have is, all uh, those industries all present at, at a table, and they're all looking at which version of gold or beige or or pink or whatever, um, whether those are in in the list of colors that are going to be popular. Um, when you knock it off one industry's list, you pretty much knock it off all the industries. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's it, and. Uh, it's it's a it's a challenging thing to follow, but when you get with the trend people, they all look at it from, you know, macro trends, micro trends, uh, various different color groups. But at the end of the day, uh, 
they're all listening to the same group of people. And mm-hmm. uh, our co- our colorist, Barbara, is the one who taught at Parsons, so she's your mm-hmm. uh, alum. There you go. Mm-hmm. I'll be uh, I'll be doing that next week when I'm back home for Christmas. I think my mom finally convinced my dad to retile the bathroom. So, <laughs> so I have I have like one week to get in there with all the color choices and all of the before he changes his mind. I think. Um, oh geez, yeah, that's yeah. A, it's a challenge, <laughs> and it's a hard job. But mm-hmm. trend is very important, and and right now we're seeing just an explosion of of sizes, and all mm-hmm. of these sizes require. Uh, new setting standards, new setting materials, new types of, of binding mortars, new types of levelers to help control the the edges of the tile and the, the self-leveling aspects of the product so you don't have trip fall hazards. There's all kinds of, every time you increase the size of a tile, you're also increasing and complicating the installation methods and procedures which requires a tremendous amount of work by the people that work on the standards uh, for the installation of these various products. So not just are we dealing with it from a from an industry technological perspective, equipment that can manufacture bigger tiles, but we're dealing with it from every aspect of allied industry that supports our industry having to change at the same time to accommodate these new products. Mm-hmm. And it, keeping us all very busy. Yeah. So going into that, um, my final question is just what is on the horizon? What do you see being uh, in the future for Tile? Wow. Well, I think you're going to continue to see more realistic looks. You're going to see better and better stone looks. People still are fascinated by the quality that you can get with a large unit porcelain tile versus natural stone. They're always going to want natural stone if if that's their thing, but if you're going to be putting that product in an environment where it's going to have a ton of traffic, you're going to want something that's very low maintenance. And porcelain offers uh, opportunities for that usage areas that you don't get with, with natural stone. You're also going to see... Uh, more and more tile on exteriors, larger tiles on the exterior of projects to make them look more interesting and to see them used uh, to feature and accent entries on retail environments, on wainscoting on exteriors of, of fast food restaurants. And you're going to see uh, interesting, interesting uh, uh, minimalist products in the commercial office space environment. You're going to get to see uh, better textured cements. You're going to get to see products that marry uh, fabric and, and cement. You're going to see products that mimic uh, types of stones that are really, really hard to find in the world but are cool enough that you can make in porcelain and supply to everybody. You're also going to see uh, sizes. You're going to see uh, bigger, longer planks in wood flooring and other non-typical uh, flooring products. And you're going to also see Lots of really unique complex glass and uh, and liner type accents for residential backsplash. You're going to see geometric uh, sizes continue to increase. You're going to see geometric relief products that have depth in them for residential applications of walls and floors to keep it 
keep it interesting. So there is a lot to work on. I don't know what you've seen, and Tim goes to the trade shows too, and we see a lot of things. And we have our own design studios that we work with, and a lot of the trends that we're seeing are the blending of products, wood with ceramic, uh, metal with ceramic, uh, different types of stone with different types of cement, you know, looks that, that are married together to make for real interesting floors and walls. So you just have to find something that you you think will fit in your wheelhouse and it will fit with the client base that you have, but there is just a lot going on in the terms of design right out there. So think about um, think about color, think about sizes, and think about texture. Great. Well, thank you both again so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Well, I hope Enjoy that it. your listeners like it. It's been fun. My first and podcast. Just to... <laughs> your first one, Tim? <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully it was pretty uh, painless. Yes, it was. Yes, oh, it was. It was great. interesting, too. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get the latest from the INS podcast. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us, please feel free to do so. My email address can be found in the masthead of any Interiors and Sources magazine. But in case you don't have it on hand, it is k-a-d-i-e dot y-a-l-e at interiorsandsources.com. And until next time, thanks so much.